Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. They left all the American cars. Oh, my God. I think his skull is broken. Oh, my God. I'm a doctor. Let me in there. Brooke, our car is gone. Now who's a genius for keeping his regal? Hey, sir, they got the SL. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay, broadcasting from Toronto. Those voices you heard right before I came on, that's dialogue from All Happy Families, the fifth season episode of The Sopranos in which a bunch of crooks steal expensive European cars from guests at an upscale Jewish wedding. One of those guests, you hear his voice briefly right at the tail end of the clip, was Stuart Silverman, a character played by longtime New Republic literary editor Leon Wieselcher. And if you're wondering if Wieselcher was a recurring character on the show, No, he wasn't. In fact, that was his only cameo. But I decided to lead the show off with it because it was exciting, and also because it gives you some indication of who Wieseltier is. He's not just the bookish genius who guided the back section of the New Republic before moving to Atlantic magazine and then getting Me Too'd following multiple incidents of inappropriate workplace behavior and then starting his own magazine. He's also something of an all-purpose cultural gadabout. As you'll hear in the interview that follows, He's a jazz expert, a car chase movie fan, a gourmand, a Woody Allen apologist like me, and oh yes, a big Quillette fan. He was also once offered a role on Entourage, how cool is that, which amazingly he turned down. Leon Wieseltier's newest venture is Liberties, a long-form, old-fashioned quarterly literary journal featuring such writers as Michael Ignatieff and Laura Kipnis. It's going into its third edition now, and is informed by the same sort of classically liberal political values that we're proud to showcase at Quillette. And as you'll hear, Wieseltier is absolutely unapologetic about the print-first, digital, maybe, media model he's pursuing. I spoke to Leon Wieseltier last week. Here are excerpts from our conversation. When I was doing the research for this interview... I stumbled on this reference to you being in The Sopranos, of all I things. I was, yes. I stopped watching Sopranos in the second season because it's it's too violent. But it brought me to this delightful scene on YouTube where <laughs> there was this whole Jewish wedding scene. Yes. Can you tell me what figure you play in that episode and how you came to be in it? Yeah, um, I played imperishably a figure called Stuart Silverman, who was the head of paper at... Goldman or something, and his fancy Mercedes was stolen in a carjacking in the parking lot during a Jewish wedding. The horror actually gets interrupted. Well, I'll tell you a funny story if you want to hear it about the whole road. I always have time for a funny story. They steal my car, and because the father of the bride or the groom, I forget which, plays poker with Tony, Tony agrees to find the car before it gets chopped up. That's sort of a, a little plot line in the episode. It's like the Jewish-Italian version of Gone in 60 Seconds. It's funny you should say that. It was apparently the longest and most expensive shoot on The Sopranos because in order they had to get the carjacking right. And so just to be safe, 
they got permission to repave the entire parking lot of this state park where they shot this thing. And then they had to get a bunch of very good drivers who could get cars in and out of parking spots, like in that Nicolas Cage movie. Yeah, Gone in 60, which was my favorite Nicolas Cage movie, by the way. Oh, I've I've got a soft spot for that movie too, but I've got a very odd, I have a soft spot for all muscle car-y movies. But tell me how come you got cast? I mean, it's not like Hollywood doesn't have juice. Careful, careful. (laughs) What happened was my wife at the time was pregnant with our first child, and it was in her eighth month, And I began to worry that after the beautiful thing was born, it would be the revolution and I would never get to have any fun again, which turned out to be completely wrong. But a friend of mine who was writing for The Sopranos said to me, well, why don't you come up to New Jersey? We're shooting at the Bada Bing and just hang out and have a nice day with everybody. And I was a Sopranos addict. So I said, sure. I hopped on the train to Lodi, New Jersey and got to meet everybody. And they were a little bit surprised by the kind of obsessive scholarly familiarity that I had with the show and its characters. And by the end of the day, they were teasing me. They said, well, we'll do something for you. We'll do something for you. So I said to them, you know what? What I'd really like is give me a kind of scuzzy ponytail and a scuzzy black leather jacket. And I'll be one of those guys sitting alone at the Bada Bing while you do your scenes. That would be fun enough. And they said, no, 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 no. And then about three or four weeks later, three pages of a script came over and they asked if I would like to play Stuart Silverman. And I thought for about a nanosecond and said yes. And so I was up in New York. I had to read for the part. I'm proud to report that they were satisfied with my reading. And then I got picked up at the corner about 9 p.m. of Broadway and 86th in a van to drive me and a few other actors out to this state park in New Jersey where they were shooting this reformed Jewish wedding scene. And since I had a speaking part, it was only one line, but it was a speaking part, I got a trailer, which was good because the carjacking scene took forever. You got your own trailer? I got my own trailer. I had a wonderful part that unfortunately got cut out in a movie called Defiance. I was in Lithuania filming scenes with Daniel Craig for three days. Wow was going to do something on Entourage, but my boy, who had then been born, he had something, it it was already in school, and couldn't go. I was asked to play, can you imagine, the counter guy at the medical marijuana dispensary, because Johnny Drama figured out that he could score weed if he pretended to be sick. So I was asked to do that. No, it, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. I had to warn my mother, because my speaking part on The Sopranos included the word motherfucking, which made me very proud because it was part of the ethos of the show. But I did have to warn my mother that it it might be nice to see me on the screen, but she might want to turn the sound down. You do have a certain like Mandy Patinkin kind of... Oh, no, no, don't say that. I I have a... I can't abide Mandy Patinkin. All right. So moving on, the main reason we're talking is because of your new publication, Liberties. So I'm an editor myself. Yeah, I know. Podcasting is kind of a side gig. When you're trying to recruit good writers, the kind of writers that I try to get, and I think it's the kind of writers you're trying to get, they're people who have a point to make, and maybe it's not primarily about money, it's about making their case to the public. 
and making sure it gets read. Mm -hmm. People talk about paywalls, web paywalls, as being an impediment to readers. I actually find it's more of an impediment to writers because if, if writers have a passionate argument to make, they want the world to know it. They don't want it to be behind a paywall. You've got some incredible writers that you've recruited. I'm looking here. Laura Kipnis's name jumps out, but there's at least a dozen big shots that I'm seeing from your first two editions. Fuad Ajami, Michael Ignatieff, almost became prime minister of my country here in Canada. That's right. That's right. But how do you make the case to them, putting aside money and putting aside all the baggage? I mean, you know, you went through a whole Me Too thing. How do you make the case to them that, that this is the place where they should make their big argument. And these are not 800-word pieces. These are big, weighty pieces that probably take weeks or months to write in a format that people have to buy the stuff on Amazon. Like, it's not like you have a big, splashy website. How do you convince them to publish with you and not someone else? Well, the baggage I bring to this is not me too. It's the fact that I've worked with many of these people for 35 years, and we know each other's minds. and what I offer them is two things. One, they can write at any damn length they want because I am so sick of the brevity and the velocity of everything. Liberties was, it was not conceived for hot takes and it was not conceived for rapid response and it was not conceived to react the news. It was conceived to discuss larger issues and ideas that have been somewhat scanted in the crush of the news and in the crush of commentary, especially in the lunatic Trump years. I offer them all the space they want. They know they can write exactly in their own voice. I'm an exceptionally unaggressive editor. I've always been that way. Uh, I want my writers to sound like themselves. And I know that they are members of my company, meaning my philosophical and ideological and cultural company. I know who they are, and Liberties is in the business of causes. I've always been in the business of causes. I'm not in the business of explanatory journalism. I think explanatory journalism is a useful public service, but it's a dodge, because the issues facing us now are so great and the stakes are so high that I don't understand the attraction of the idea that we'll park our values at the door. Now, of course, in most instances of explanatory journalism, the values have not been parked at the door. They're, they're kind of baked deep into the piece. But I've always thought that explanatory journalism is something that everybody who writes an article about anything has to do for themselves, meaning they have to know what on earth they're talking about and what it means. And then they've got to move on to the important climactic next step, which is to make a case for something or against something. And I know what my writers think and feel about some of the recent developments because we're old comrades. I should add to that that one of the nice experiences has been finding younger writers because it is the sacred duty of an editor to find younger writers. I mean, you know, it's true of any tradition. If you inherit it and you develop it, but you don't transmit it, then you've betrayed it. And so back at the old magazine, and now at Liberties, I've always prided myself on the younger writers that I found. And I always knew that even though they're in the minority, and even though everybody is addicted to social media, 
and blah, blah, blah. I always knew that there are a lot of serious young people out there who really would like to take part in grand, old-fashioned intellectual discourse. They're there. Now I'm basically nakedly stealing your trade secrets, but where do you find your young writers? Because um, it is easy, and I know, actually, I know many editors who've fallen into this trap that they have this couple of dozen writers that they love, and then they just stick with them. And then the years pass, and you go from being a 50-year-old editor with 40-year-old writers to being a 70-year-old editor with 60-year-old writers, but it's the same group of writers. Careful, I'm 68. You, sir, are in the bloom of youth. Thank you. Tell me where you find your young writers. In a variety of ways. I read all kinds of -of out-of-the-way things. I get tips from other young writers. I get tips from professors and teachers. They come to me. It's hard. There's no question that it's hard. As a general rule, I'm speaking here statistically, they're not producing young intellectuals the way they used to for a whole variety of reasons. But as I say, in absolute numbers, there are many young writers and thinkers out there who would be delighted to take part in such discussion. And I'm not going to tell you their name. (laughs) (laughs) The problem is, and this has always been the problem with high-end journalism, is that a person who is smart enough to write a long essay that gets into your publication is also smart enough to do a dozen other things that make him a lot more money. First of all, I pay quite well. That was one of my stipulations. But well in arts and letters. I'm talking people who are smart enough to be lawyers and go to Wall Street and stuff. You mean they're smart enough to do other things in life? They're smart enough to do other things in life. Everyone I've worked with in journalism who I respect is smart enough probably to have written their own ticket in a whole bunch of other fields, most of which are more stable and remunerative than journalism. But the other thing, and this has developed in the last 15 or 20 years, even if they have picked the public sphere as a writer or a journalist or a book reviewer or whatnot, you also have to compete with other media that allow them to do what you call the hot take, where they're writing 800-word pieces for Vox or whatever about how the latest Star Wars movie doesn't have the right number of pronoun people. And they know they're going to get 50,000 hits within 10 minutes of putting that piece up. You're competing against... Actually, I'm not competing against them because I'm not looking for those writers. And those writers are not looking to do that. I'm talking about people who feel intellectual activity and serious writing to be a calling, not just a career. And people, you know, one of the most important decisions that any writer can make, maybe the most important decision that any young writer can make when you're starting out, is who you choose to imitate. At what level do you, do you wish to play? And if you want to play at a low level and get a million hits and get tweeted about and have your name mentioned today and tomorrow and the next day, that's very easy to do. And there are a lot of people doing that. But there are also a sufficient number of people who feel the calling, who are serious, and who I found, one of the reasons I started this thing is that over the last three or four years, even during my recent adventure when I was at home reflecting and doing nothing, all my writer friends would tell me that they have no place to write. They can write here, but the adjectives and the adverbs are going to be politically trimmed. They can write there, but they limit them to 1,200 words. I mean, more and more I kept hearing this. And I began to feel that there was no place 
for classical liberals to write. I don't mean progressives, I mean liberals. These people really believe in free speech and open discussion. There's a liberal left and a post-liberal left, and these are people from the liberal left. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and so am I, absolutely. And liberalism, as far as I'm concerned, neither philosophically nor in policy, domestic or foreign, committed such abuses and crimes that it deserves to be rejected, especially in favor of orientations and frameworks that philosophically are dangerous, in my view, and that warp our society and our, and our diplomacy. We can go on about this. But yes, this is a liberal journal. You know, liberalism was responsible for mistakes. Its mistakes were not remotely as costly as the mistakes of socialism or of fascism. Historically, liberalism brought about what I think of as mixed result. In my view, and I, I write about this in the, my essay in, in the third issue, which will be out this spring, in this world, mixed results for me is a lot. I mean, I don't sneeze at mixed results, not in a marriage, not in a book, not in a foreign policy. Really, that's a lot. And we're now living in a culture that is addled by this obsession with purity and perfection. Well, you work at Quillette, you know what you're arguing against. And liberalism is the view that there are no pure people and there are no perfect people, and that forgiveness is an ethical and political requirement. I think it's the right framework. And my job as an intellectual and as an editor is, I sometimes refer to it as meteorological, it's intellectual climate change. And my job is to put out perspectives and arguments that I believe are necessary and right and let them find their audience. You know, I'm not taking reader surveys. I don't give a damn whether people want it or not. That's a beautifully pure attitude as an editor. <laughs> the Mike Lugnatyev piece is called Liberalism in the Anthropocene, yeah. which, is, <laughs> which is the kind of head you would put on a piece that it's the opposite of clickbait. The opposite of clickbait, <laughs> yeah. You know, the old thing we were taught in economics, value derives from scarcity. And I think that it is true that some of these analyses are not everywhere to be found. And for me, that is, I take pride in that. Even I am old enough to remember when there were a dozen places you could have got stuff like this. That's correct. Now there's a few. New York Review of Books is one of those places. It's actually one of the, the few publications I still subscribe to. There is an audience for it. An academic audience. This is, as I said, delightfully pure, almost like an artistic approach to editing. But it presumes a certain stable line of cash. The idea that you're just going to rely on advertising, that, that's kind of over. I have a patron. I have a backer. I have very enlightened and determined support for this. We come out four times a year. We do what we can afford to do thanks to the, the wisdom and the generosity of the people who back us. Big Think Pieces about the future of journalism is, is one of the few things that predictably generates hits on, on journalistic outlets. Right, absolutely. At, at the old magazine, I was publishing pieces like that 20 years ago. I remember... I, it came to mind the other day, a long and really important essay by Paul Starr about what the destruction of newspapers, especially at the local level, 20 years ago, if it's a day. And Nick Lemon wrote about this and other people wrote about this. This is not a new problem. You know, the Internet, the web is the original Pandora's box. 
We can't do anything about it anymore. Whereas it's true that the history of technology shows that technology is deployed way before it's understood, largely because of the amounts of wealth it can generate. This, the, the deployment of this technology ranks as the single most thoughtless technological revolution of them all. And we're now dealing with all the effects of this, this cataclysmic change. I know there are good things about it too. But again, I myself, I'm not on, I never was on Facebook. I never was on Twitter. I don't know what social media look like. I despise the idea of social media uh, for a whole variety of reasons. I know that it's an important reality in the world, but I'm sick even of reading about how troubling it is. The only thing to do in response to things you don't like is to do the thing that you think people should like. If you're a regular listener to the Quillette podcast, you'll be familiar with BetterHelp, one of our original advertisers. Well, thanks to everything that's happened since early 2020 and the stresses that the pandemic has put on everyone, the online therapy services at BetterHelp are more relevant and in demand than ever. BetterHelp will help you unlock the tools you need to help with motivation, depression, anxiety, battling your temper, stress, dealing with insecurity in relationships or at work, whatever you need. Especially at a time like this, no one should be anxious about admitting that they're going through normal human struggles, because you deserve to be happy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. And you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't feel comfortable doing so. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what therapy is really about. And Quillette Podcast listeners get 10% off their first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash Quillette. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Quillette. Thanks to BetterHelp for their sponsorship. And now back to the Quillette Podcast. I mean, I know a lot of people are going to say that you're very old fashioned. I mean, you're proudly old fashioned, but... But there's also this like hipster vibe you're giving me because there is this whole contingent of people who came of age professionally. It's been around for a while where they started making bicycles by hand. They're buying vinyl, for God's sake. Are you the vinyl storefront of long-form literary journalism? If you want to call it that, look, I concluded many, many decades ago, people like to be in the presence of the real thing. They really do. And even if it costs a little more, it's a little harder to get, or they don't completely understand it. They do have a sense of what's real and what's counterfeit, what's art and what's kitsch, what's thought and what's propaganda. They do have some sense of this. I remember many years ago, a friend of mine who'd never listened to jazz said to me one evening in Washington, take me to some jazz. I want to, you know, introduce me to it. So I had a choice. Wynton Marsalis had his septet at Blues Alley, which just announced that it was closing this week. And the Kennedy Center had Chick Corea, who just died this week. But I thought Chick Corea was more or less kitsch. It was very easy to get. Wynton's music was the real thing, but very hard to get. It was, he was playing post-bebop, very sophisticated stuff. And I took her to, to Blues Alley because I thought, at least she'll get the feeling of being in the presence of the real thing. And 
She loved it, even though she didn't get the music almost at all. But she loved it. And this is true in art. This is true in literature. This is true in movies. So, yeah, digital life, whatever is good about it or whatever is bad about it, is in no sense the real thing. Whether you want to attack it as counterfeit or whether you want to call it a new kind of experience, whatever it is, and it's a reality of ours, we and the rest of humankind are going to be living in it till the end of time. But it does provoke a reaction that puts a whole new favorable light on physical reality, on things that are slower. I mean, I sometimes think that the only revolutionary act that can still be committed is to slow anything the fuck down. Anything. And it does make people who still live in bodies and still experience real time and still live emotionally at the pace of their own heart, not at the pace of their minds. Their minds have been accelerated to an absurd point. But it, it does provoke in people a feeling that something slower, something deeper, something longer is necessary in all the realms of life, in all the realms of life. And that's a big sermon by way of saying that, yeah, at some level, I want people to pick up liberties. You know, it's, it's three months of reading, 12 weeks of reading, can't be consumed overnight. Not every essay is for every reader, but I want all kinds of readers to at least once or twice in these 12 weeks sit down with something that slows them down and stimulates them, whether they agree or disagree, to something that is more closely resembles reflection. I just signed up for Liberties. In the United States, it's it's $50 for, for four issues. In Canada, I know it costs the earth, I know. It's 106 which isn't a crazy amount. It's four issues, and each issue is a couple hundred pages. And 350 to 400 pages. This is kind of basically a quarterly book of the month club. Like, does this sort of blur the line between magazine and a succession of anthologies? It's a book that's a journal, and a journal that's a book, yes. Did they have to convince you to create a website? No, I'm not that Neanderthal about it. No, no, no. I mean, look, the web has solved the greatest problem that any writer or editor ever faced, which is the problem of dissemination, of how to get your ideas out, right? I mean, if it, now with the web, if there are Jews on Mars, we can get it to them, right? Every, so that it solved that, that huge problem. It also created economic havoc. Again, it's the, it's the Pandora's box thing. No, we needed a website. I wanted a website. We are now developing our website. More things will be on the website. There will be an ebook. We're not Luddites here. We're just not fellow travelers of the zeitgeist either. I mean, you know, we don't hang around and think of just how cool it is to be assaulted all day by social media. And, you know, again, I don't know what the circulation of partisan review was when it started or when it ended. It couldn't have been many thousands. It couldn't have been. And there used to be a kind of journal in America that, were, that was known as the Little Magazine. Harriet Monroe published it. Partisan Review was one of them. Lincoln Kirstein did one. And they published writers such as T.S. Eliot, for example. And it's not about the size or the reach. If we find 5,000 real readers of this, and if they take those ideas out into the world, and if with a, an ebook 
and a more developed website, we manage without giving away everything that we do for free, because I don't believe in that either. I mean, if you eat a bowl of pasta at an Italian restaurant, you can't just compliment the chef. He mixed his labor with it. I mean, you've got to actually pay for it. But if, if we do all that, then I will regard this as a success. We will find our, we will find our audience. We will find our audience. You know, there's a reason why the best jazz clubs in America were always small rooms, because there weren't a lot of people who wanted to hear some of this stuff. But the people who heard them understood the importance of it and brought the news out of the club to the world. A great literary journal of, of the late 20th century variety, some of these little little magazines, as you call them, they had the quality of, of a small but, but well-known jazz club where like you wouldn't know who's going to show up. Right. It, it could be like, you know, Tom Wolfe or John Updike drops in to write a scathing 2,000-word review of some book you've never heard of, and that's like a normal thing. Right. I don't think there's any publication around. Well, maybe you're, you're creating one, but... I'm creating one. We do not have a proprietary attitude about our writers the way many magazines have now because people are so afraid of the competition that they actually forbid their writers to write elsewhere. That's awesome to know because there's a few of these that I'm going to try and poach. This is a target-rich environment. My friend, there are writers here who are deeply admiring of, of what Quillette has done, and, and that includes their editor, me. <laughs> and rightly so. We have to talk about Quillette also because this is my chance to tell you how necessary I think you've been in a really bleak landscape. This was not a setup. I did not, we did not discuss this. I understand. I understand. But, you know, if, if someone does, and this was my view at the old magazine too, if somebody is writing wonderful things for me and they want to write wonderful things for somebody else, then all they do is bring us honor by appearing there too. Well, actually, one nice thing about a quarterly is there isn't even the pretense that you're going to monopolize this author. If you're running a daily newspaper or even a weekly magazine, you can absorb almost everything that person writes, with the exception, of course, of like novels and long-form books, whereas you can't even pretend to absorb everything. No, no, and I'm not interested in doing that. All I want from my writers is intellectual incandescence. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you want. Yeah, right. Okay, I see. But they can have all the space they need. They will never be told, I'm sorry, you've got to cut 2,000 words. And they can speak in their own damn voices. And if they don't agree with me about the war in Iraq, that's fine. And if they don't agree with other writers about, I don't know, Basquiat, that's fine. We don't have a company line. We have a large orientation and framework. And we will have people, there will be progressives in there. I mean, Laura Kipnis is a progressive. We will have conservatives in there. Jack Goldsmith, Bob Kagan. And we will have liberals in there, but all of us share a fundamental philosophical orientation about politics and culture within which we can disagree and fight it out. The great thing about having worked at the New Republic in the decades that I did was that we exemplified the quarrels. We had them among ourselves. We had a larger orientation, but we don't have a party line the way some of the more noteworthy magazines of our time do. Laura Kipnis is a great get. And Laura, if you're listening to this, I'm interested to know why you said no to me when I asked you to write, but Leon calls you and apparently it's uh, no problem. Not to make a big deal, but <laughs> not to make a big deal. Well, I mean, she's actually a writer that I have asked to write. 
And she's like, oh, you know, I'm super busy, the New York Review of Books. And then, you know, I open up your magazine and she's right there. It's really extraordinary. We have to talk a little bit about the whole Me Too situation. There was an essay in The Atlantic, I guess this is going back three or four years. People are probably bored of it. I'm sure you're more than bored of it. But I'm going to read the opening sentence was, it was never an open secret among me and my then colleagues that Leon Wieseltier, the longtime literary czar of the New Republic, behaved inappropriately with women in the workplace. Anybody who who was interested in that aspect of it, they already know all this stuff. I'm not going to dwell on it. Yeah. But the reason I'm mentioning it is because when I was looking at some of the the people who had opined on liberties, there was one comment that really stuck with me. It was someone at Vox or Slate or Vice or you know one of those monosyllable progressive publications. And, and their comment was, if you want to help rehabilitate a Me Too'd guy, buy this book. They were basically saying they had no opinion on the content. I'm sure they hadn't read it. But for them, buying or not buying your publication was a political commentary on how feminist you were. It isn't just in regard to you. I know conservatives, like I'll send them a beautifully written obituary from the New York Times, because the New York Times still does amazing obituaries, probably because many of them were written five or 10 years ago. Or longer even. And they'll say, no, no I'm not going to read that. It's the New York Times. They'll be contaminated, right. Yeah. You don't like their politics, so you're not going to read an obituary of, of a football player? Like, what's wrong with you? Is that a problem here that people now make decisions about what to read based on hashtags and tribal personality judgments? Those readers, as far as I'm concerned, can stick with The New Yorker. But maybe they don't even read that. Maybe The New Yorker's committed some thought crimes. I mean, The New Yorker got in trouble. Remember, they had that conference out in Aspen and they invited Steve Bannon and they had to cancel that? No, The New Yorker, like other places, is being edited by Twitter now. But the, the truth, look, I'm not going to get into the details of what was alleged about me. There were some things that I did over the years that were wrong and I regretted them. I apologized for them. I went away, I did my reflecting, and in the first essay that I wrote, in the first issue of Liberties, I described some of the conclusions that I arrived at. If people think that because allegations were made against me, that they were all true, if they think that the absence of due process of any kind is okay with them, if they think that the complete impossibility of defending oneself or even being defended by other people during this is all right with them. If they want to forever think that I can be reduced in everything that I have done and in my character as a man and as a human being to those flaws, then they can continue to think so. They must be very perfect and impeccable people themselves. I learned a lot of things during this recent experience. One of them was I thought a lot about forgiveness and unforgivingness. I had always said all my life, because I always knew that I was not a perfect individual, that if I had to choose between living in a world of fidelity and a world of forgiveness, I would choose the latter because I could not promise that I would hold myself always live up to the very highest standards. Uh, I don't know many people who can, but that's not the question here. We are now living in a, in a time in which people believe that if they encounter people or opinions that they don't like, that they are being contaminated. The fact is we're living now in a culture that consists more and more of inquisitions. Livelihoods are tossed aside like an old cappuccino cup. 
That's such an elitist metaphor, as was your metaphor about the Italian pasta, by the way. <laughs> These are in large okay. measure elitist activities. The first edition of Liberties, I didn't quite incidentally notice at least half the writers are women. Did any of these writers, male or female, did they get pushback on social media or other words? Not one raised an objection to me. And I have to tell you that no writer that I have approached has said to me, I'd love to, but dot, 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 dot. Not one. My Me Too experience, as far as I'm concerned, had nothing whatsoever to do with my intellectual qualifications or authority. And I have a long life of writing and thinking and editing. And I returned to it after doing penance for something that I had done wrong. If people want to keep me a pariah for the rest of their lives, they can knock themselves out. That's fine. That's fine. But the reception of the existence of liberties, the reception of liberties, the willingness of writers of all genders and orientations and races around the world to write for liberties, all of this indicates to me that there are also a great many larger people in the world. I hope that when all these people who need to know only hashtags to make judgments of other human beings, one day when they are in need of forgiveness, I hope that the person who needs to forgive them will not have taken their behavior as an example. Because at this point in my life, the thing I can least forgive is unforgivingness. I have come to understand what a gigantic moral and spiritual thing forgiveness is. And not just because I needed it. I, you know, I needed it for things before, too. We all need forgiveness. And now a message from another podcast, The Jordan Harbinger Show. If you're like me, you like to shake up your podcast repertoire every now and again. In the run-up to the U.S. election, I was listening to a lot of political stuff, but now I'm looking for something new. And there's a reason Jordan Harbinger's podcast caught my eye and was named a top podcast by Apple in 2018. It's because Harbinger, a Wall Street lawyer turned podcaster, focuses on real human beings and real human issues. Recent episodes have brought listeners issues like should a cheater get a second chance and how to protect yourself from psychopaths. And I dare you not to listen to another episode called Saying Sayonara to Sisters Swindling Sweetie. If this sounds interesting to you, look up The Jordan Harbinger Show wherever you listen to podcasts. That's H-A-R-B like Bob, I-N-G-E-R. And now back to our Quillette podcast. We should recognize that when it comes to what we now call cancel culture, the shoe was on the other foot for many years, and there were women who complained about inappropriate conduct in the office, and, and they basically them, themselves were canceled. Their career suffered, or sometimes they were just shown the door because they made a fuss about the casting couch. Of course. Look, look, look. Of course. But the issue is truth, fairness, and justice for all the shoes on all the feet. In my decades at the old magazine, even some of the women who made these allegations against me will tell you to what extent I supported their careers and did everything I possibly could when they left to get them jobs in everywhere from fancy New York magazines to Hollywood studios. You're not allowed to say this about Woody Allen, but there's, there's a long line of female Oscar winners whose careers 
basically took off because they were in Woody Allen's films. I would appreciate if you would take back the analogy to Woody Allen. Oh, but I, Woody Allen was completely innocent, as far as I'm concerned, 100% innocent. And this new HBO documentary is... It is an inquisition. It is a fucking inquisition. My point about Woody Allen, people are complicated. Yes, thank you, yes. Now everybody is walking around making this perfectly idiotic correlation between good character and art. We know, you know, we've known since ancient Greece that you can be a brilliant philosopher and a brilliant poet and a brilliant writer and a great artist and be a nasty piece of work. This goes back to this comment that I read, if you want to help a Me Too guy rehabilitate by this book, which suggests writers are a kind of priestly class and that when you buy a book, it's like you're throwing a quarter into the donation dish for a particular religious denomination. That thing you read, that is designed to intimidate people and to chill conversation. That is a way of saying that anything done by a certain person is ipso facto worthless because that person did it. And that is a repulsive proposition. The converse can also be damaging because the converse, which unfortunately has become prevalent in the, the Canadian arts sphere, is that if your politics are impeccable, if you tick every box on the intersectional spectrum. That means that if you make a film or you make a book, it's going to be this wonderful piece of genius. Right. And often it's right. not. It's just like this well-intentioned piece of progressive propaganda, which is not literature. Right. I have a really brilliant essay in the forthcoming issue in spring about this phenomenon. It's called Sanctimony Literature, and it identifies the genre based on a great many contemporary novels. It, it's exa goes exactly to your point. But also, there are no good people and bad people. There are only good and bad people. Everybody is a, is a mixture of that. Everybody. Some people are better, some people are worse. I'm telling you, we're living in, in the kingdom of purity. We don't have time to talk about jazz. The only thing I have to say about jazz is I don't get jazz. Time in my life when I really got into cartoonist Robert Crumb, who of course was a jazz fanatic, and I tried to get into jazz, and I absolutely, I don't get it. It just, it bores the hell out of me. I'll send you a few CDs. I will try to, to remedy this infirmity. We've been listening to Leon Wieseltier, the founder and editor of Liberties, a new journal of culture and politics. Thanks so much for joining us on the Quillette Podcast. It was a pleasure, Jonathan. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.